Welcome to a show, a two-part show, about the American Revolution, which you have to admit is a fairly fashionable topic these days. A little bit later in the show, we will talk to Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. You know who Adam Gopnik is. Right now, we're going to talk to Brad Meltzer. He's the author of a dozen or so thrillers, including The Escape Artist, but he recently co-authored with Josh Mensch his first nonfiction book, the First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington. He's also host of the History Channel TV shows Brad Meltzer's Lost History and Brad Meltzer's Decoded. Let's get going. So, you know, it seems as though these days we're almost kind of rediscovering our revolutionary history through works like yours and Hamilton and, of course, the, uh, the Chernow biography that Hamilton was based on. But this is a pretty interesting and bracing story that, for the most part, people didn't know. And, and as I understand from what you wrote, something that you sort of discovered in a footnote. I did find it in a footnote uh, nearly a decade ago. And I remember reading it and going, wow, a secret plot to kill George Washington. That's crazy. Is that real? Is it fake? Is it internet nonsense? I went to my friend Joseph Ellis. Mm. He said, of course, he'd known the story. It was, you know, any good biography should have a quick mention of it. But he said, you can find out exactly how many slaves George Washington owned. You'll never find all of his spies. So, yes, I think it's a great point that clandestine activities are therefore clandestine. And so records are deliberately not kept. It's much harder to find the the normal kind of paper trail you might find in other historical research. So to understand what's going on, I think what we have to do, first of all, is talk a little bit about the colonies on the eve of war in 1776, but very specifically about New York City, uh, which was in many respects not like a lot of the other colonies and not particularly consistent. Uh, sympathetic with the patriot or rebel cause. And that's exactly right. You know, we love our legends and myths in America, and the legends and myths we love most are our own. So we love to tell the story of we held hands in the American Revolution, we all dreamed of democracy together, and then we took on the British, the greatest fighting force the world had ever known. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when we tell the American Revolution story, we focus on Philadelphia, obviously, for the you know declaration, we focus on Boston for you know of course Lexington, Concord, and all the battles there. But the true heart of it starts it, to me in New York City. If you think we're divided today, back in 1776 in New York City, which is where the British first invaded and the biggest battles, the first big battles took place, there were nearly as many loyalists that were on the British side as there were patriots on the American side. Dave McCullough himself, you know, I think. And I agree with his take is that, you know, 30 percent of people wanted democracy. 30 percent really wanted to stay under the king. They were like, why bother? It's, you know, let's just make a good, uh, a better trade deal and a better tax deal. And another 30 percent was indifferent. So almost exactly where we are today. And we didn't even have back then one uniform. Some people were showing up in work shirts to fight. One of my favorite scenes when you when you read the first conspiracy is you see a huge fight breaks out in Harvard mm-hmm. Yard, Massachusetts. And the Massachusetts regiment is fighting with the Virginia regiment. They were making fun of their some frilly thing on their uniform. And it's George Washington who races in on his horse and leaps off the horse, grabs two of the guys by the neck, and is basically shaking them and saying, stop fighting with each other. We're on the same team. 
Yeah, no, they and, were and, they were biting each other. Uh, <laughs> not not a good moment for us. No. So and and New York is a real problem too because you know I always say that you can sort of do a, a the equivalent of a weather map at the time and so the the darkest color for loyalist or Tory sympathy really would be New York City and I, I'm sitting here in New England and so as you spread east and north uh, becomes much more uh, mixed precipitation with patriot and rebel sympathies the closer you get uh, towards Boston but yeah certainly New York City and and some of the the areas here in Connecticut close to New York City were, were heavily Tory. And I think another thing that your book does a really good th- job of bringing out, as you s- just said, this is a, a group of colonies going up uh, against you know what was almost an undoubtedly uh, the most superbly trained fighting apparatus in the world. And so, you know, I mean, we know what happened now, but they didn't know what was going to happen. So if you were in one of these places, it might behoove you to think, geez, what's my plan if we lose? We we want to have a moment where you think you're going to win. And the truth was, we know now what the ending is. We certainly didn't know it then. If you look at the at the Battle of Brooklyn, the first major battle of the war, we got our butts kicked. George Washington got outgeneraled. He didn't have the experience of the British generals. At the time, he gets pinned down. The, you know, arguably, it should be the moment he dies. It should be all over. And Washington has this wonderful moment where, you know, he, he plans a daring escape in the middle of the night. And, and, and that's wonderful. But make no mistake, we are not thinking, oh, my gosh, we're the best at this. If anything, we're getting we're getting beat and we're retreating and we're getting beat and we're retreating. And when that happens... Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity for the other side. And that's exactly what happens here. You have the former governor under British rule, a man named Governor William Tryon in New York. And you have the former mayor of New York under British rule, uh, a man named Dave, Mayor David Matthews. And the two of them basically start going in on the Patriot side and saying, who wants to join the other team? And we'll give you money. And, and you have to also understand when people who are being paid – are suddenly not being paid because they run out of money or suddenly realize there's not enough gunpowder to go around and realize, wait, it's winter and we don't have any shoes. And so those people become opportunities for the other side to say, hey, you want to join the winning team. I think another thing that uh, comes out in your book, too, which I think people don't think about too much, is obviously this is uh, an American experiment, so to speak. Uh, there isn't any kind of standing army. So where do you get your soldiers? Where do you get some of your best soldiers? Well, they're essentially people, they're deserters from the British Army, right? That's that's a good place where you can get a soldier, would be to get somebody to desert the side he was on. All right. And guess what happens when you have deserters? <laughs> If they find another opportunity, they're going to desert again. And one of the things that I found most interesting is, you know, you have as the British invade New York City and finally come here, we send 10,000 men to meet them. And all the wealthy people in New York City at that time were like, wait, there's a war going on here? I don't want to be here for that. And they leave. But it's 10,000 men descending on New York doing exactly what 10,000 men would do today if you left them alone and unsupervised and away from their wives and their girlfriends and anyone else. They're gambling, they're drinking, they're going to prostitutes. And George Washington is a proper Virginian gentleman. He is horrified by this. You know, now we know all the rules and regulations of the military. But back then, there were none. He, he was building he, it he uh, had to, day he had, by day. He had to get books. He had to read books to find well, out. Well, yeah. one of the first things he does when they give him control of the military is he, he goes out and buys books. 
to be a better general, to learn about military strategy. It's not a sign of weakness, right? It's a sign of strength. Similar to what Lincoln does when he takes office is, is saying, I don't know everything. I need to figure this out. And at the same time, he starts creating what they call general orders. And his general orders were like truly the orders that come down every day with new rules to kind of manage the military with. And one of the first ones is no gambling. There was no United States back then. He had to help build it by putting his arms around this chaos and make these United States actually united. I mean, it's not there then. We're trying to build it. Right. So New York, just to give people kind of a picture, too, New York City goes all the way up to what is Chambers Street now. It's tiny. There's 20,000 people there. Pretty much it starts to be woods and fields and hills and farms and stuff like that after that. But there is this area called Holy Ground, which is the area you're talking about. It, it turns out that it's not a bunch of people walking around constantly quoting Thomas Paine and John Locke to each other. It's, as you say, soldiers doing the things that soldiers do when they're unsupervised. And so, yeah, that that is a breeding ground also for maybe turning people people's thoughts away from the cause. That seems to be what happens. There's this cabal that forms right inside Washington's army. And when we say right inside, I'm going to turn it over to you, Brad. This includes the so-called lifeguards. Explain who the lifeguards are. Yeah, this is one of my favorite things when we research in the book. And Josh mentioned I worked on the book. And one of the things we found that both of us, it was, I think, our favorite moment is that George Washington had his own private bodyguards. And he had asked all of his top military regiments, he said, give me your four best men. He wanted what they called back then drilled men, not just a certain height and build, but even a certain moral character, one of the best of the best. George Washington himself, out of these men, narrows it down personally to about 50 or so men. They become what's called the general's guards, the commander's guards, but the name that sticks is, as you said, the lifeguards, because one of their jobs is to guard George Washington's life. They, they, hold, they guard his papers, they guard the money, but they're guarding George Washington's life. And these are the men who turn on George Washington. These are the men who become involved in the plot to kill George Washington. And it's a moment that is devastating for George Washington. Yeah, so devastating. I think it's sort of hard for, I mean, for reasons that will become clear when people read the book, it might even be just clear that you could intuit them right now. He can't tell a lot of people once he knows about this problem, but you almost sense from some of the writings, some of the messages that you, you quote in the book that you know, he's almost a little embarrassed by the fact that, you know, the, the, this plot, uh, this traitorous plot that exists within his own ranks includes the idea of killing him. It, it seems probably almost a, an article of shame for him. Now, you know, at the time of the Kennedy assassination, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald called himself a patsy and a fall guy. This story, although this cabal, this group, it's a fairly large group of people, but only one person gets uh, executed. And he is one of these lifeguards. And he lists as his residence Weatherfield, which is, I don't know, 10 miles from where I'm sitting right there. Right yeah. <laughs> so, so tell us about Thomas Hickey. Well, two things first. The first thing George Washington does when he kind of gets wind of it is he starts, he forms what eventually becomes a secret committee. And they call it the Committee on Conspiracies, because if you have a secret committee, you better pick one with a cool name. And the first name he picks is the Committee on Intestine Enemies, which is a terrible name. <laughs> but they settle on the Committee on Conspiracies. And he puts, he puts John Jay in charge of it, who, of course, later becomes the first Supreme Court justice. But at this moment, it's just starting out his career. And John Jay, uh, along with two other men, you see Governor Morris and you see Philip Livingston, uh, literally start knocking on doors in the middle of the night, pulling out suspects, interrogating them. And what they're doing in the process is they're building America's first counterintelligence agency. 
And the techniques they're using continue through the war. In fact, to this day, right now, people, you know, historians will tell you that the precursor to the CIA is the OSS. But it's not. It's this moment right here in the plot against Washington. In fact, right now in CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, there is a room dedicated to John Jay, who they call the founding father of counterintelligence. And it's John Jay and this committee who secretly try the one man we're talking about. Because what happens is, as you said, there are many people involved, but oddly, there is kind of a patsy moment. Because uh, when they find out who's responsible, George Washington gathers those responsible. He takes uh, one of the main co-conspirators, he builds a gallows, and he hanged the man in front of 20,000 people, the largest public execution at that point in North American history. The, it, it begs the question of why, you know, all these people are involved. You got the governor of New York, you got the mayor of New York, you have so many lifeguards and all these other men involved. And yet the person who takes the fall is this man from Connecticut, Thomas Hickey. We really don't know why him as opposed to everyone else. And it could be because he's Irish. It could be because of, you know, and not just I, not just Irish, what we call black Irish, black he, Irish, he, he yes, dark exactly. haired and probably more dark complected, darkly complected than the average person these days thinks of an Irishman being. I mean, race may have played some kind of role in this. Uh, right. And, and the truth is, is, you know, it, it boggles the mind. You have your hands on the mayor. You know, we know where the governor is, but it's it's this one man. And we even have people from from his own lifeguard unit who we have in custody. We got them all, even the one that they call the leader. Maybe even his housekeeper. And maybe even his house. That that's one of my. Can we talk about that one? That one's yeah. one of my. Favorites. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to wreck stuff that's. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I won't book. wreck it, but I'll say this. There's this wonderful story about Mary Smith, who is George Washington's housekeeper, at the time living with him, is with him on a daily basis, and as all this is happening. Mary Smith disappears. And there are a million theories on what happened to Mary Smith, that she's in on it, that she's a prostitute, that she was killed in the night, that she's murdered, that she escapes, that she, I mean, you name it. Trying to find out what happened to Mary Smith is, is you, you know, you'll have as much success if you go put the words Mary Smith into Google right now. Right. For us, somewhere that ends, but the one that cracked open for us is this one with Thomas Hickey, because one of the things we were able to find is when they tried, they actually tried Thomas Hickey. They brought witnesses, they swore them in, and thankfully, someone kept a transcript. And when we were able to find that, now we actually had something that was on the official record. We're talking to Brad Meltzer right now. Um, there is, we can't get into this just for time reasons, but there's also this very cryptic thing that Washington writes at the time of the execution. He mentions lewd women as being uh, part of the problem. Is this Mary Smith? Is it prostitutes from the holy ground? You'll have to read uh, this book uh, to find out a little bit more about that. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with Brad. We want to talk about ways in which this moment, this birth of counterintelligence made necessary by this plot to destabilize the army and maybe even kill Washington, how in fact this became the birth of an, a branch of intelligence and how it was regarded. So let's take a break. Uh, we'll come back. As a kid in the Caribbean, I wished for a war. I knew that I was poor. I knew it was the only way to rise up. If they tell my story, I am either going to die on the battlefield in glory or rise up. I will fight for this land, but there's only one man who can give us a command so we can rise up. Understand, it's the only way to rise up, rise up. Here he comes. Here comes the general. Ladies and gentlemen. Here comes the general. The moment you've been waiting for. Here comes the general. The pride of Mount Vernon. Here 
We're talking to Brad Meltzer. Uh, he is the author, along with Josh Mensch, of The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington. So I think it's important to talk about, you know, you were talking at the beginning about how George Washington is kind of the consummate Virginia gentleman, you know, looks down on ordinary uh, forms of vice. But there's also, uh, at this time, there's almost a little bit of a prejudice against the idea of espionage and spying. Washington and other leaders at the time sort of thought, well, you know, that's something that gentlemen do. They don't spy. Gentlemen fight differently than that. And so this is something that they have to learn, you know, pretty much as they go. And they're not only learning it, but they're learning it on the wrong end of it because the British are spectacular at it. Yes. You know, the British are, are opening our mail. There's an entire mail espionage program that goes on, that every letter that's coming in and out of the colonies is being read by the British. So they know exactly what's going, because it's not like you can send it in secret, you know, in Twitter or Facebook. I mean, there's one way that information is going in and out. There's no phones. And they have a total control of it. The truth is, regardless of whether Washington thinks it's below him, regardless of he just is, is too inexperienced and he's naive about it, you know, he starts this war thinking, oh, of course, we need a great offense. We need a way to fight the British. But what he slowly learns as the British successfully plant a mole inside of the Continental Congress, Washington realizes we don't just need a great offense to fight. We need a great defense, too. The British, the, the British already have their first James Bond. They've got a guy named John Andre, who was actually ultimately involved in the suborning of Benedict Arnold. He's in Westminster Abbey. That's how highly they regarded him. Right. They, they got his remains back from Tarrytown to New York to Westminster Abbey. So they're not, they're not against spying. But it is true. I mean, so I'm from Connecticut. That's that's Nathan Hale country. You talk about Nathan Hale in, in the book. You know, Hale himself re referred to spying as a peculiar service. And he said it was made honorable by being necessary. But, um, you know, we don't really have a lot of trained spies in 1776 or the years that follow. Yeah. And listen, that's that's the Nathan Hale legacy right there. Right. Mm -hmm. When you know, right now there's a statue of Nathan Hale outside of CIA headquarters. And when uh, Casey took over the CIA yes, years I ago, I know this story, uh, you know, this story, yeah. right? One of the first things he did is he said, why do we have Nathan Hale outside CIA headquarters? He's like, he's the spy who failed. Mm -hmm. He's the one who got caught. And he says that the person who we should have out there is a guy named Benjamin Talmadge, who most people have never heard of. But, you know, obviously in your part of the world, they probably many have. But Benjamin Talmadge is, of course, part of George Washington's secret spy ring called the Culpa Ring. And it takes them, you know, over a century before anyone even figures out that the Culpa Ring exists. And he's like, that's someone who you want to make a statue of, the guy who keeps the secrets, who lives and who escapes. But what, what Nathan Hale represents, though, is, is our early learning on how to even get this done. Um, because we certainly, as you said, we don't know how to do it. And it's, it's John Jay who becomes, you know, just, he's just particularly great at it. There's no training, there's no manual that we have in, you know, in 1776. John Jay is just sneaky enough and smart enough and savvy enough to realize, wait, I'm good at this. And in fact, at the end of the war, he's so good at it. It's why George Washington says to him, listen, pick whatever position you want in the cabinet, it's yours. And John Jay selects the Supreme Court. 
But it's it's not because he's, you know, spent all of his years, as I thought, as someone who went to law school. I just assume, well, that's what he did. He spent most of his years working as the spy master. One thing, uh, actually, I'm going to be able to tell Brad Meltzer something that he probably doesn't know, and that's not easy to do. Uh, Brad Meltzer is with us, the author of The First Conspiracy, The Secret of Plot to Kill George Washington. So among Hale scholars, there was this theory, never amounted to very much, but there's, a, first of all, a question about why after Hale died, no gesture of condolence or commendation was ever made to his family. The, the government in really in no way would really acknowledge his sacrifice. And one theory was that Hale wasn't really alone, that he was part of a a little bit more of an operation, a little bit of a spy ring. And you do uh, write and talk about the Culper ring, as you just said, which is what follows after that. And and there are theories that the Culper ring, it, maybe if it doesn't exist exactly by that name, that there's kind of a through line from 1776 to the present uh, in the world of espionage. Talk a little bit about what you've heard or what you think about that. Yeah, you know, there is a guy um, named, his last name is Nagy, N-A-G-Y, and I'm just blanking on his first name, who actually wrote a wonderful book about all the different spy rings that George Washington had. They certainly were not limited to just the culprit ring. But what you see and what they develop over time is amazing. But, you know, they start out in this plot against Washington, and, and they're really, even before it starts, even before they get wind of it, they find out that one of their closest confidants, one of Washington's close confidants, is on the other side. And he's sneaking information and he's sending it in secret messages. And they intercept one of these messages. And George Washington says, well, we got to decode this coded message. And they look around and they don't even have anyone who can do any sort of decoding. There's no code breakers on staff. They're literally putting the word out saying, go get them. And then they slowly realize, okay, how do we send coded messages? And we all know that if you have, and we've all seen Invisible Ink where you know, you write in some form of lemon juice and you heat the paper and then, you know, the, the letters bloom to life. That's a terrible, terrible invisible ink <laughs> uh, because all you need to crack it is a match. And what they invent is they invent what they call the insufferable stain, uh, which is what really amounts to a chemical process. They call the agent and the reagent. Then they're basically realized, here's what we're going to do. Colin, you're going to have the agent. You're going to write in the agent to me. And I'm going to have a totally different uh, formula called the reagent. And when I get what you send to me, I'm going to color the piece of paper and then it's going to bloom to life. It can't be cracked unless you have the other piece of it. It's a genius idea. To this day, the CIA still says that they use a version of it. So, Brad Miltzer, we're running out of time here, and there's one thing that I wanted to just quickly explore with you because it's quite touching. So, um, you know, you're an unusual author in that you can get both uh, Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush to uh, to blurb your book. But it's more than that. You actually, as I understand it, read from this book to the 41st president uh, towards the end of his life. Can you just say a little bit about that? Yeah, this was um, an incredible moment. So what happened was, we were honoring Barbara Bush's work and all she had done with literacy. So to honor her, I went to Kennebunkport, Maine, and this was a couple months ago. Of course, at that point, we knew what was happening to President Bush, and they had told me that they were inviting some of his favorite authors to come read to him. And they asked me if I would come read, and I was, uh, of course, I said I, I would be honored to. And I got there. And they, they warned me. They said, listen, we just want to tell you that he's only going to be awake for about 10 minutes. He's going to fall asleep because he's sleeping most of the days these days. So we go into the room, and it's my wife and myself. It's President Bush, 
and his service dog, Sully, Secret Service leave. That's all that's there. And on his desk are about five or six books stacked up. And one of them is one, a copy of my book, The First Conspiracy, is on there. I had sent them a copy about a year ago to blurb it, but it looks like this thing has been read. And I say to him, sir, you want to read this? And he says, mm-hmm, because at this point he can't really speak. He can nod and kind of give you a mm-hmm. And as I'm reading, within 10 minutes, again, he starts falling asleep. But I wanted to read to him one of my favorite scenes in the book, which is where George Washington has the Declaration of Independence read for the first time to the troops, presented for the first time. And I get to those words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And in that moment, President's eyes pop open. He is locked on me. It's like he's back, like as if the words of the Declaration are his very lifeblood. Mm-hmm. And I say to him, you want to, you know, we finish that chapter, and I say, you want to read another chapter? He goes, mm-hmm. And we read another. You want to read another? Mm-hmm. And another? Mm-hmm. And instead of 10 minutes, I'm there for an hour. Mm. And when it's done, of course, I say my goodbyes to him. Uh, and to be able to read about our first president to at that point the oldest living president is of course a humbling moment but when he passed i went to the funeral and what i was struck by is in all the tributes to president bush the word that kept getting mentioned over and over was this word decency and yes it was because he was such a decent man but also i believe it's because as a culture right now we are starving for decency And I think we need those lessons of President Bush. I think we need those lessons of George Washington, that it's not, you know, right now we favor those who are great at calling attention to themselves. You know, on social media, those who say, look at me, Um, those who beat their chest and write in all caps and triple exclamation points to tell you that they have all the answers. And I personally think we need to start favoring and remembering that it's the humble ones uh, who have a far better impact on the world. Um, also, of course, uh, a former director of the CIA might be kind of interested in your book, uh, but the beginnings <laughs> of counterintelligence. All right. So, Brad Meltzer, thank you so much for sharing that very touching story and for sharing the details of your book written with John Mensch. The book, again, is The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington. Thanks for doing this. No, thank you. Always great to be back. And I want to thank you. You know, you support us when we do the fiction books, when we do the I Am Kids books. Now we do our nonfiction one. It means more than I can express. So well, thank you. Brad, thank you for using the word support because we're about to head into one of those pledge breaks where we ask you to support what we do. Uh, the nice people are going to tell you why you should support public radio and this show in particular. And we kind of get extra credit if you donate during our show. So uh, listen to what they have to say. Hopefully uh, you'll be willing to support us. I anticipate with pleasing expectation that retreat in which I promised myself to realize the sweet enjoyment of partaking in the midst of my fellow citizens. The benign influence of good laws under a free government, the ever-favorite object of my heart, and the happy reward, as I trust, of our mutual cares, labors, and dangers. One last time. Say goodbye. So, 
in the summer of 2015, uh, I was uh, attending a church where Nancy Butler was the pastor. She was talking about the just war doctrine, which is developed by uh, Augustine and Aquinas, really goes back to the Mahabharata in some ways, a very old notion of when war is or is not just. And then she looked around the congregation and she said, so was the American Revolution a just war? And then very, very delicately shook her head. Um, and so this is a, something that I th I've thought about a lot, both before and since that time. Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker, SAS lyricist, libretto writer, uh, the author of several books. His new book just finished is called A Thousand Small Sanities, a book about liberalism uh, of the American revolutionary kind. It will be out in April. In 2017, he wrote a piece r related to this, I, I think, in The New Yorker. We could have been Canada. Was the American Revolution, such a good idea. So, you know, Adam, in terms of that just war question, it's an interesting question, right? I mean, it certainly isn't the case that they had exhausted all other possibilities before resorting to violence. I think that's true. And to that account, you also have to add the reality, which often denied, perhaps always denied by most American admirers of the Founding Fathers and the cult of the Revolution, that the uh, revolution was fought in part to maintain slavery in place. You know, uh, Hamilton, the great uh, musical of uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, which is the one of the great patriotic uh, events and artworks of our time, has this extraordinary moment with the Battle of Yorktown. I don't know if you remember it, yes. right? The world turned upside down. Mm. It's hugely moving and, of course, enacted by minority and largely African-American actors. What tends to be overlooked is that at the Battle of Yorktown, an enormous number of slaves had sought refuge with the British, who were not slaveholders at that time, and they were recuperated. They were reclaimed by their owners, including both Jefferson and Washington, and put back into slavery, taken out of the British fortifications at Yorktown and forced back into slavery. Just war? That's a, a, a reasonable question, given the actual circumstances of what happened. I think there's also another and somewhat subtler and maybe even more relevant question. And I should add right away, Colin, that I raise these things more as ethical hypotheticals. Mm -hmm. There's a lyric for you, there the, you ethical, go, yeah. the ethical hypothetical, than as uh, categorical statements, questions we need to explore rather than uh, moral absolutes we need to enjoin. But I do think it's it's also the case that, and it's, there's a very good book by uh, Connecticut, a Yale guy named Justin de Rivage about this, that far from being a revolt of uh, uh, democracy and freedom-minded Americans against a monolithic, tyrannical Britain, that this was a revolt fought by, so to speak, the left, the, the more egalitarian side, what someone has called the, uh, uh, the radical Whigs, on both sides of the Atlantic, which happened to take one turn in this country and another turn in another country. I am, as you may know, Colin, mm -hmm. Canadian by upbringing. And in Canada, of course, which eventually would reach a situation of civil liberties and uh, domestic freedom in every way equal to that of the United States, it all happened through peaceful evolution, as it did as well in Australia and elsewhere. And those are the kinds of questions I think we need to ask, not to undermine the achievements or, in many respects, the, the beauty, the moral beauty of the American Revolution, but to remind ourselves that no moral beauty is sufficiently unblemished uh, not to need some examination. 
Right. I mean, one of the points you make in the piece is that uh, had the other side, the uh, more authoritarian Whigs prevailed, um, probably or very possibly uh, um, slavery might have been sort of phased out in a different way. I mean, Britain obviously got ahead of us in opposition to slavery, probably because slavery was so successfully hived off uh, in the former colonies by the 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 revolution. Yeah. Yeah, to the West Indies from a commercial point of view, even more significantly at that moment than in uh, than in America. But yeah, I mean, those are questions that are are worth asking. Or let me put the, it around the other way, Colin. The question maybe worth asking is is what is it about the American Revolution once you accept the human reality that it was far from a pristine revolt of egalitarian liberals against. Uh, uh, a monolithic tyranny on the other side. Once you accept the inevitable human premise that it was one fallible side against another fallible side, good question is, all right, what was distinct and, if you like, radical, important in the American Revolution that is what we should hold on to? You know, not long ago, I did a long piece about, uh, for The New Yorker, uh, where I work as a, as a uh, you know, a sharecropper, um, <laughs> turning in, uh, they, they throw books at me and I turn them into my own version of cotton or paper. But in any case, I did a long piece about Frederick Douglass, mm-hmm. uh, and I nominated him as the greatest American who's ever lived, and I'm fairly confident in that claim, that nomination. And one of the fascinating things about Frederick Douglass, raised in slavery of an extremely brutal kind, escaped from slavery, is that he was an unqualified admirer of the U.S. Constitution, mm-hmm. even though the U.S. Constitution uh, had enabled slavery in its original form. Why did Frederick Douglass nonetheless think the U.S. Constitution was one of the great liberty documents in the world is because it articulated a set set of claims about the nature of government, the relationship of individuals to their government, about the government through the consent of the governed rather than through some strange genetic line passed on from the divine and so on. And he thought those were enduring and permanent truths that in a very Obama-like way we had yet to live up to adequately, but that through action, what became the Civil War, we could yet live up to. That side of the American Revolution, the idea of trying to create documents and trying to create articulated principles that didn't just evolve towards uh, an egalitarian premise, but that insisted on egalitarian conduct, that may be the, the most, if you like, salvageable part of that story. Well, you're not going to catch me talking back to Fre- Frederick Douglass uh, in a snarky way, but on the other hand, I- I'm not many sh- many did in many, his lifetime. Many did. <laughs> I I still struggle with that that notion of reverence. And you know, you talk uh, in in that I read that Frederick Douglass piece by right. by the way it was great. But you talk in the Revolution piece about how it's the last bulwark of national myth. Well, I would fold in the Constitution too. I mean, let's keep in mind that if you and I decided to launch some national initiative now, and our plan was that we would have 55 white males, 54 of them Protestants and one Catholic meet in secrecy, no freedom of information, no openness whatsoever, and hatch a plan that was uh, infused with quite a bit of day drinking from what we know. And in some ways, I look at the Constitution and I think, wow, that's the kind of document you get from that process. So you've got things like firearms being written into the Constitution. I think Guatemala and Mexico are the only other countries in the world that mention guns in their foundational documents. You know, you, you have a system that doesn't really take note of the reality or the humanity of the slave population or indigenous Americans, for that matter. You know, I mean, I... Sure. I, you know, I, I'll take it one step farther than that. One of the things that we have learned over the, the evolution of democracies is that presidential systems tend to be extremely poor 
and they get people in enormous trouble, whereas parliamentary systems tend to be far more efficient, where you have the executive and the legislature consolidated in one branch. You could attack it in that way, too. You know, we accept things like the United States Senate, one of the most wildly anti-democratic institutions anywhere in a so-called democracy, uh, the Electoral College we could go into and so on. So I think all of those things are, are legitimate objections. One thing I'd add, though, is that just as one of the reasons not to be uh, reverential or pious about the American Revolution while admiring the uh, intellectual nobility of many of its makers. One reason is is because it blinds us from the parallel development and the parallel search for free institutions, for liberal mm -hmm. institutions in other countries. That's very much one of the themes of this new book I've got, Colin, A Thousand Small Sanities. One of the fascinating things is to watch how, for instance, in the 1860s, after the American Civil War, the growth of republicanism in France, the growth of consolidation of uh, anti-slavery uh, rule in the United States, uh, the enfranchisement of the British working classes in uh, in England and, uh, are all proceeding in lockstep. One thing affects the other. You know, we don't stop to think about it, Colin, very much, but the Statue of Liberty, which we see as the, uh, the icon, the herald of immigration, is created in France in the 1860s as a salute to the triumph of American republicanism and as an, an, as an impetus to French republicanism. So all of these things and all of these movements are locked together, the development of even my native country of Canada's independence. And I think that by fetishizing the American moment, the shining city on the hill, we miss all of those parallel human developments that are going on, feeding and inspiring our own. Yeah, I think, you know, the way to look at the American Revolution is uh, as proof that we are both beautiful and dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, even Hamilton in the second act, it's clear that, yeah, yeah slavery, uh, people are going to make sure that slavery uh, stays enshrined pretty much where it is, that we are not going to come to France's aid in their hour in, uh, of need, that the backroom deal, the room where it happened, you know, a place where three powerful men can come in and forge a compromise without the will and consent uh, of, of the people being governed is, is also going to become a fixture. All that stuff is there. But, you know, what you're saying, too, is with that is also this notion of transformation, idealism and opportunity. I think you cite Gordon Wood in your essay as, you know, yeah, the, that notion of position is something other than purely heritable uh, becomes uh, also enshrined. I, I was just about, Colin, I was just about to mention Gordon Wood's name. He wrote a wonderful book uh, on the radicalism of the American Revolution. I guess it was a few years ago. It was more like 40 years ago, but it seemed relatively recent. Uh, and he makes that case that with all of its flaws and all of its disabilities and all of its injustices, the American Revolution was the first moment since antiquity and really including antiquity, which tolerated slavery, when the overt claim was made that government rested on the consent of the governed. It wasn't, as it was in Britain, a way of saying, well, we accept that uh, the premises of a monarchy, but we believe a monarchy functions most smoothly and most readily if there's major consultation going on, a kind of uh, blind or surreptitious dem democracy. No, this was outright declaration that the people had to govern and that they governed not through genetic accident, but the government only worked if it was government of consent. However imperfectly realized that was, Gordon Wood argued, I think with a great deal of, of eloquence and justification, that was a signal moment in human history and the advancement of human freedom. 
Right. And I think the argument that you make in this piece, and, and I'm really excited about the book, too, because I, I think it's going to continue this this conversation, is the argument is against, I think, looking at the American Revolution as something inert and decided, you know, that ultimately we yes. have to have an ongoing dialogue. Like, why why do we not see uh, Alexander Hamilton or or Sam Adams in Ho Chi Minh 200 years later? Why, well, is it because Ho Chi Minh is a radically different kind of personage uh, with more on the line and less in holdings? Or is it because we, we just we, we're not in that conversation with our revolutionary selves? Well, I think that's exactly the theme of the the book of my book, my defense of liberalism is that liberalism is not uh, an ideology or a dogma that produces axioms and rules that you can follow. Uh, very much not. It's uh, a temperament, an inclination, a set of uh, of desires, a project to move towards a more egalitarian world that alters and changes all the time, and that has to have a corrective conscience. It's capable of looking, as Frederick Douglass looked back at the Constitution, and saying, this is a just document creating an extremely unjust country. And we can count to two. We can say both things at the same time without betraying our allegiance to the principles of of uh, our founding, but also without blinding ourselves to the realities of our existence. That's what liberalism is. It's the capacity to be both self-corrective and optimistic. So, Adam Gopnik, I think the key is that we have a plan right now. The book comes out in April. Um, we have to have like a 49-minute conversation that extends what we're talking about right now. How I does that be, sound? I would be delighted, Colin. All right. So I'm thrilled, too. Uh, Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. You all know who Adam Gopnik is. I don't have to explain that to you. Uh, but his book about liberalism and, uh, of the American revolutionary kind, A Thousand Small Sanities, will be out in April. Uh, he'll be back here. We'll have this conversation all over again. Adam, thanks a bunch. Always a pleasure being with you, Thomas. And right now, what we're about to do is head into a, a segment where we do ask you to support public broadcasting in the way that you know how to do. Nice people are going to sing the praises of this station and particularly of this show. And if you like the idea of a show where somebody of Adam Gopnik's stature will come on and talk to a schlemiel like me, well, then you should probably be supporting it. Uh, so do what they ask you to do. What comes next? You've been freed. Do you know how hard it is to lead? You're on your own. Awesome. Wow. Do you have a clue what happens now? Oceans rise.